0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to New Seat Podcast. Your host, Chris, joined, as always, with my co-host, Peace. And today, we have a very lovely episode for everyone out there. Someone who is going to bring a great energy to the podcast, has a very interesting background from theater all the way now to excelling in the people's face. The one and only principal people partner at Oyster, Kim Rohrer. Kim, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Thank you. Thank you. What an intro. Oh, thank
0: you. Oh, so thank you. You're very kind. Very kind. <laughs> So Kim, if you could give us a little bit about yeah. your background, I know I just mentioned the whole uh, theater aspect of it, and yeah, uh, how far
1: back are we rewinding? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, just I guess more so, a little, yeah, general <laughs> background. How'd you end up in the People's Space sort of a thing? And if you could talk yeah. a little bit more about Oyster and your position there.
1: Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I started out in theater, I was a theater kid, my whole life thought I was going to be pursuing a career in theater. And I realized I wanted something more stable, I wanted a a more stable career. And I had no idea what that would be. Because until I made that realization, or had that realization, I thought I was going into professional theater. I was working in a field called dramaturgy, which will come up later in our conversation. I'm sure dramaturgy, a word no one has heard of unless you work in the theater. It's essentially being the, the research person on the production. So it requires skills of collaboration and research and a little bit of storytelling uh, to help set the stage for the show, to help the designers and the actors and the production crew know what the world of the of the. is. I thought that was going to be my life. And I was going to be like a famous drama. There's no famous dramaturge. I was going to be like working on Broadway, like helping people out. And then I just needed more stability in my life. And I ended up at Google. The very funny story, because how do you do that? I'm living here in Berkeley. This was in 2007. And my mom said, hey, that Google company is in the Bay Area. Maybe you could get a job there. And I was like, oh, yeah, Google is up here. It's like a growing tech company. Let me, let me see about them. And I had a friend who worked there who was able to get my application seen. And I started my tech career as an administrative associate at Google. And that really shaped a lot of what I learned there shaped the way that I approach my work today. Learning about collaboration, again, with from theater to tech, there's a lot of collaboration. And just seeing how companies worked. I had never worked at like a company company. I would always worked in theaters or kind of retail type jobs. I'd never worked at like a corporation. And having Google as my first experience really spoiled me for the employee experience and really spoiled me for things like company values and people experience and how you think about developing your your employees and your culture and how you tell the story of your company. Having that as my first introduction to to the world of, of work really outside of theater was I think it's it's been critical in informing the way that I've shaped my career. I went from Google to Pixar, got laid off after six weeks, spent some time on fun employment, ended up at a recording studio doing more administrative work, and then really just wanted to get back in tech. Ended up as the office manager plus at Discuss, which was at the time a 10-person little baby startup that had just raised their Series B and was looking to grow up a little bit. And, and I, they were looking for someone who wanted to do everything office with a little HR. And that over the course of eight years turned into a VP of people role and kind of learned on the job and taught myself everything I needed to know with the help of a really strong community. And yeah, we, we got acquired. I ended up VP of people at another tech company, got laid off at the beginning of COVID, did some independent consulting work for a while and then ended up at Oyster. And I've had a, a rolling journey here for the last two yeah. years at at Oyster.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So I would, I would love to go back to the leap from theater to Google. First of all, shout out to yeah. your mom <laughs> for getting, know, that, right? getting that started.
1: It was a different time in 2007 where you could be like, isn't Google up there? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So,
2: I mean, what was the now called people structure like in theater? at that time, yeah. In contrast to what it was like when you stepped into Google. I mean, two different complete industries. Very different. Assuming the way they look at collaboration and outworth production of theaters, yeah. art. Google's clearly, you know, technology and the search engine, the whole shebang. What What yeah. was that like?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I think I didn't, I hadn't made this connection until a couple of years later, but there's a lot of crossover between theater and tech in terms of you know, even though the output is different, you're putting on a show versus putting out a product, you know, tech product on the back end, it's very similar. You have people who are designing, you have people who are building, you have people who are writing, you have people who are performing. You know, I, th- I like to think of like the actors are like the engineers who are putting out the, putting out the content into the world, you know, building the the thing that people consume. But on the back end, you have a lot of the same roles and responsibilities, and I had been doing a lot of like stage management and producing when I was in college, and in my early theater days. And like going from being a stage manager to being an office manager is like almost a one-to-one transfer. It's like the exact same skill set that you need. And I was as an administrative assistant, it's very similar work to like back-end production work. You have to be good with uh, schedules and calendars, and bringing people together. And you know, the stage manager is often the one that's responsible for. Kind of setting up the meeting, calling the meeting, bringing everyone together for rehearsal, welcoming everyone, and that's exactly what I was doing. I was bringing together my team of engineers, planning little events to help them bond together, making sure the space was set up properly, making sure they had everything they needed, reminding them the things they needed to do, maintaining the the production calendar or the the, the schedule on the back end. So it's a lot of the same work. It's a lot of the same skill sets, and I, I found it to be a very a very easy transition from kind of back end theater production to back end tech administration. And I got to use some of the same some of the same creative skills too, because the the admin team at the time, there were <laughs> seems so silly now. There were 300 administrative assistants worldwide for all of Google. There were, I think I can't remember how big the company was back in two thousand seven, we can like insert that stat later. But I remember there were about 300 of us at all levels from like entry level admin to executive assistant. And so you know with only three hundred people you can form a bit of a community and a couple other admins and I got together and created a playbook for how to be an admin at Google because every team in every country and every location, we were all doing things the same job, but doing it slightly differently. And so we came up with some best practices and ways for new admins to onboard quicker, and these are all skills that I had learned in theater, you know, putting together the production playbook, putting together the, like the, the backend kind of welcome guide for everyone to make sure everyone's on the same page with the production. It's a very dramaturgy sort of thing to do. I you know we were the ones responsible for putting on the show of the all hands meeting, putting on the show of the team building event, putting on the show of the holiday party. And so it was like very similar work and having it, you know, having a team to collaborate with almost felt at times, like I have a whole team of stage managers that I'm working with. It's not just like one person doing this. That was a really interesting development for me going from being kind of like the one person doing my job in a, in a theater environment to being one person doing that job on my own team, but within a larger construct of, you know, this group of 300 other people who were doing the same job at the same company. That was a really exciting kind of development in my career and something that I then continued to, to try to emulate everywhere I've gone since.
2: How did that community grow as I mean, Google's no longer a 300-person company, clearly, yeah, right? So
1: millions of people now. That's
2: crazy. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was, so I was at Google for about a year and a half. I left to pursue other things because I realized I didn't want to be a career admin. And at the time, I can't speak to how it is now, but at the time, that was the only option. I was trying to move into marketing. I was doing projects with the Google Maps marketing team and just couldn't make the shift full-time because the admin team held on to us very tightly and didn't want us to leave the admin team. It was a lot of back-end politics back then. I, I assume there still are, it's a company. But at the time, I was like, I want to get into something more creative. I want to I want to do a little bit more. And that's how I ended up at Pixar doing a similar job. I was a production coordinator. So similar type of job, but on a single production at a different company. I was more creative. Kind of more arts based company. And as I said, that was unfortunately not long lived, they had overstaffed our production and combined the admin team with another production. And I got laid off very quickly. But that you know, it's it, even though I was only there for six weeks, I that was a really great second job after Google, because Pixar is another company that has a really strong employer brand, it has a really strong sense of who they are, what kind of company they want to be, what values they they use to make decisions internally. And so I just kind of, you know, assumed that that's how companies worked. Because, you know, theaters have that. And then I worked at Google, which clearly had that. And I was at Pixar, which clearly had that. And I was like, okay, well, companies have this. Companies need to have a clearly defined sense of self and a way of telling that story to their employees. This is just how companies work. didn't realize you have to actually intentionally build that if you want it to exist. And that not all companies have taken the time to do that. But that, you know, that opened the door for me later on in my career to use that foundation to build that within other companies.
2: And you mentioned, I mean, clearly Google has its own, you mentioned briefly, Google has its own clearly brand, employer brand. Pixar alone also has its own direction relevant to employer brand. What was that relationship like going from one to the other, understanding that those are two huge identities?
1: Yeah. Not only in
2: the technology, just in the day-to-day consumer behavior. Just
1: like, yeah, it's very like, they're both household names, right? It was, I mean, I was going into it knowing that that was going to be the case, knowing that I was... I'm mean, gonna take what I learned at Google and keep what worked and you know learn from what didn't. And I knew and I was excited about learning about a different company that had a very specific identity and culture. I was really excited about the opportunity to to like get my hands dirty and get in there and learn about, you know, how do you educate your employees here? What kinds of opportunities do you provide for development? What kinds of, you know, how do the different teams interact? it's funny that we're talking about this because I was cleaning out my desk the other day and I found my notebook from, that I kept when I was working there. And I had forgotten that I went on this listening tour of everyone on our on our production team and just sat down with each of them. I was like, what do you do? What do you love about it? What's difficult about it? How does your role fit in with other roles on the team? How do you work together? Who else should I talk to? And I just like had these really like, of exploratory conversations with everyone because at the time you know I knew I knew what I was good at in in some capacity I knew what I enjoyed doing but I didn't know exactly where I wanted to take my career I thought maybe I wanted to get into story development I also really liked their Pixar University program where they like are their employee education program I also knew that I liked production work I was like what like where might I want to grow my career at this company and so I just I learned a lot and I spent most of those my, my six short weeks learning from from everyone that I worked with and making friends around the company some of whom are still friends today that were just people that I, I thought they were interesting I thought their work was interesting and it was like hey can we grab a coffee and kind of talk to you about your job and learn more about what you do and that in and of itself helps to educate you on what kind of company culture you have, what kind of environment you have. Like, it's one thing to be like, Oh, you have a cereal bar that's open all day and that's great, but how do you work together? How do you, how do you make decisions? How do you grow your career? How do you, how do you think about your relationships with your coworkers? How do you, how do you each have a part in contributing to the final product and seeing like, you know, how do the animators, think about the marketing team? How does the, you know, the editor who's handling the final shots think about the relationship between the lighting designer? That was the same in tech. Like, what is the relationship like between engineering and design? What is the relationship like between sales and marketing? What's the relationship like between sales and product? Like, investigating those relationships and learning more about how individuals and leaders within those teams think about those cross-functional relationships tells you more about the company culture than anything you're gonna read on the website or see in like a shiny video that they've produced to tell you how great it is to work there. I'm putting together a document right now of questions for chief people officer type people, VP people type people to ask CEOs and founders when they're interviewing at companies. Because I think a lot of CPOs, we know a lot about what makes a good company culture and it can sometimes be hard to get those questions answered during the interview process. And so I'm compiling from I think I'm up to now like 20, 20 contributors compiling what I'm gonna gonna consider to be like a good resource for how to evaluate a company for for culture fit within your own values and for efficacy and for a strength of character and these things that are really hard to nail down during an interview process, but can really, really make or break the experience for you once you once you're inside.
2: Is this a resource for candidates inquiring?
1: Yeah, this is going to be it's just like a free thing I'm putting together. I like put a put it in a Google Doc, and then I was like, I should do this in Canva, it'll look nicer. So now I'm just like, editing it up. But yeah, for for people who are interviewing for VP of people, or CPO type jobs, to have as a resource when they're evaluating companies, because it should be a two way street. It's not just about do they want to hire you, it's about do you want to work for them. And if you are in a people leadership role, so much of the company culture, like shaping and stewarding, championing the culture is going to sit on you. And so if you're going into a place that where you're not aligned, you're not aligned with the CEO, you're not aligned with the vision for the business, you're not aligned with the culture strategy, if there even is one, like, and you're not going to be set up for success. And, but it can be really hard to unpack those things during kind of a typical interview process. And there's almost always, I mean, there better be times where they're asking you like, what questions do you have for me? Right. And so I was like, what if I could put together a list of questions that really get at the heart of how teams interact, and like, what is the culture like? What is what am I going to be walking into when I get there? We've all had jobs where you start and you walk in, and like a couple of weeks later, you're like, this is all great, and then by like month three, you're like, what did I do? Why am I here? We've all had those jobs, right? And so like, it, what if there's a better way to to assess that that alignment and that fit in the interview process? And I've, I'm lucky to have you know have a great great community and i just reached out and people started sending me the questions that they like to use and i'm pulling like the best bits of each one to like put them all in one one shiny place
2: do you mind sharing a little bit more about that dynamic because what what's really interesting is usually people talk about hey companies have to sell candidates but it's interesting because you have to sell culture to the people that help help build a sustained culture yeah what is that so what is that like
1: well that's the thing is that most of the time, what you're going to hear when you're a candidate going into these roles is you're going to hear like, we have a really great culture and everyone's really connected. We just need someone to like help take it to the next level. And when you start like digging deeper, you realize like, they don't actually know what that means. And it's like, well, what does it mean to have a great culture? Give me some examples of what that culture looks like. And most of the time they will talk about their happy hours and they'll talk about the memes that people share on Slack, and they'll talk about how like everyone's really nice, and like that is not your culture. That is your like social world. But like, how do you handle disagreements? What happens if you uh, if you really disagree with another executive? How do you how do you resolve that? Like, how does your company do conflict resolution? How do you handle career growth and performance management? I, like these things, and it's okay if they don't and if they don't know. But are they willing to admit that? Are they willing to say like you know honestly? we haven't been great at performance management and we need a leader to come in and help us build a culture of strong performance management. Well, you know, then, then you know what they're looking for. If they say, I want someone to come in and partner with me, but they won't tell you what they want a partnership on. Like then you're in trouble because they don't really mean that they want to partner.
2: How can candidates put that to, to the test essentially? So, you know, Hey, this is our culture. As you mentioned, memes, happy hours. When in yeah. reality, should be some tough questions, right? Like you mentioned, like how do you right. deal with conflict, things like that. But during, for any position beyond yeah. uh, looking to be the CPO, how do you test out if this culture is the right fit so you're not subordinate to the company submerging mm-hmm. you into their culture prior to you knowing yeah. what's going on?
1: I think it's really important to take time to actually write down what's important to you and what you value. So I did this exercise a few years ago where I wrote down what am I looking for and what am I not looking for? So like I thrive really well in company environments that are like this. I don't thrive really in company cultures that are like this. I really like open, candid conversation. I don't like yelling. I really like collaboration, but not consensus. I like directive decision-making that's based in kind of collaborative. Well, I'm like getting really corporate. I'm like collaborative idea generation and generative thinking and You know, use some buzzwords here, but you know, I like that. I don't like authoritative leadership. You know, I like, you know, writing down the things that you like and don't like and the things that are good for you, and then thinking about how you can ask questions that will address that. So, I really like the question about how do you resolve a disagreement with your executive team? If, like, let's, you know, scenario map, like, let's say you have two execs that are both making good points, but they really disagree. How do you, as the CEO, help them either disagree and commit or? get to a place where they can, they can compromise and seeing how they answer that. And if they can answer that, and if the way that they answer that is in alignment with you, like they might say, well, I'm the CEO, so I'll just pick who I think should be right. That might work for people that might not like some people were like, great, I want a CEO who's decisive and knows what they wants and isn't afraid to hurt someone's feelings. Some people might say, well, that feels like uh, I would rather have a CEO who will talk to each of them and really better understand their perspectives and get them to agree on a compromise. Like I'll coach them through resolving it on their own. There's different styles and not every, not there's not one that's right and wrong, but there is definitely one that's right or wrong for you. And so knowing before you go into it, so you're not being reactive, going into it, feeling confident in what you're looking for and knowing that you might get answers that are that are revealing in a way that you're not comfortable with. But better to know that than to take the job and get in and then realize like, wow, I'm really not comfortable with how we make decisions with this company. Because chances are, even if you're an executive, you're not gonna be able to change that. It's really hard to behavior change on some of these executive level behaviors. You have to you have to have a team that sees that it's wrong, is willing to commit to coaching and like problem solving together, and then going through the process of that coaching. It's, it's a commitment to change behavior. And so it's a lot easier if you can be kind of values aligned or action aligned before you join the company.
2: What commitment can companies do in return to almost meet candidates halfway? So you mentioned earlier, candidates have to do their due diligence internally. Would you like, would mm-hmm. you dislike or certain values that they're appreciative of or not necessarily with? But so in turn, in turn with companies, what can companies do to almost broadcast, broad, excuse me, broadcast yes. These cult, you know, their culture, their values, think they want to be transparent about, so they're almost not wasting their time in terms right. of who gets through the pipeline.
1: Absolutely, I have many feelings about this. If only everyone would do it my way, everything would be great.
2: Let's hear it. Let's um, hear it.
1: <laughs> so, I think one of the biggest problems that you see from companies hiring senior leadership roles, especially people roles, is not being clear enough about what they're looking for. And that's where, like, a CEO might need to work with an advisor or an executive coach or even, like, you know, a friend of a friend who's a people leader to really hone in on what is it that you're looking for, what kind of people leader will be successful on your team, what are the, what are the core projects or core, like, areas of people, because, you know, it's a wide range from recruiting to compliance to payroll to performance. Like, there's a lot of areas of, of HR and people worth, Right. Like, what are the areas that you are most focused on improving that you would, that you will, as a leader, as a CEO, that you are willing to invest in building or repairing and find a leader who is aligned with those things? Because I I just had this conversation with someone recently, like, if you are a, if you are like an operational efficiency analytics driven people leader, and the company is looking for someone who is going to come in and drive like, values behavior and putting together programs for employee well-being and all these things like that's not going to be a good match and the other way around like if you are a person who's all about leadership leadership development and values behaviors and employee well-being and empowerment but the, the company is looking for someone who's a real like compliance and ex- execution driven operational efficiency type people leader that's not going to be a good match either so knowing what what you need And like the type of profile of person you want to hire, and then putting that out there in the job description, saying like this is the kind of people leader we're looking for, this is the type of team you will be able to build, these are the types of things that we're prepared to put budget behind. Because like you hire a DEI focused people leader and then give them zero dollars for DEI effort, they're gonna quit. But if you say right up front, like these are the these are the things we're prioritizing, I think a lot of if you, you guys or you, the listener, do a search for VP of people job descriptions, you will see they all look very similar. You know, we want a leader who can be strategic, but roll up their sleeves and get down there in the weeds with the team. We want someone who's going to have executive presence, but also be an executor. We want someone who can lead recruiting and HR and employee experience and IT and facilities and lead all of these different things. And you'll have a team of two people reporting into you, and no budget, right? And they don't say all of that in the job description, but you know, if they list all of those areas of focus, and don't talk about the existing team, that there's no, this is not a team that's gonna be built to support you. And so, you know, after years in the field, you you can kind of read a job description and see the red flags. And if it's a company you're really interested in or a leadership team you're really interested in, then you have to take the time to poke at those things and ask like, what does the current people team look like? Is there a current people team? Who's doing this work today? And what is the company prepared to, to budget to support it? What is the headcount plan for this team for the rest of the year? What, is the, what are you currently doing for the employee experience? What are you willing to put money behind to support it? Or you're just going to end up hiring candidates who have expectations that they're going to come in and get to do stuff. And then they're going to come in and be like, oh, so I do all the jobs and I don't have a team. It's a historically under, underfunded department, Over, over-tasked
2: and underfunded. Well, so don't do parts. that. One, <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning, you mentioned the nature of culture in relation to you know, bringing on, let's say, a VP or a CPO. Yeah. Is there a way for companies to calculate cultural fit prior or even during the, the onboarding process? One. Yeah. And two, my question is, how important is actually having a CPO or a VP of people in this day and age of where technology and companies are? You know, this from our understanding, right, getting started with this podcast, we've learned that people think of HR as boring, compensation, payroll, yeah. things like that, and it yep. isn't well known at least to, let's say, our generation that, you know, chief people officers are you know, people that do care about culture, values, transparency, things like that, so if you could speak a little bit on that and the value out of yeah. companies, large or small, the preference um, yeah. When onboarding. Uh,
1: yeah, unsurprisingly, I have thoughts, so I'll start, I'll go backwards, so Depending on what your goals are with your company, if you're looking to create a product with the leanest possible team and sell it as quickly as possible, then you probably don't need to invest in this type of role. You probably just need like a junior level person who can execute on payroll and benefits and they can report into finance. And it's like not going to be that fun, but it'll give them some good experience because most people are not motivated by like you're just going to do the bare minimum HR grunt work. Good luck, but. If like, if that's your goal, like if your goal is like, I want this company to have a lucrative exit after a couple of years, and we're gonna keep the team lean and small and just get this product out there so that someone will wanna acquire us, like then you, you probably don't need to spend as much time investing in your culture and investing in, in, you know, building innovative people practices because you're not looking to build a sustainable company. You're looking to have a quick financial turnaround. But if you're looking to build a successful standalone company, you need someone focusing on your company from, I would say from the time you're like 10, 15 employees, you should have someone, not a CPO necessarily, but like someone who is keeping an eye on your company and your culture and what type of company you're building, what kind of operation you're running, because you wouldn't think I don't need a head of sales. You wouldn't think I don't need a head of product, right? Like, but there's, I think of it like a tripod. You have your product and you have your business and you have your company, and you need all three of those things to be working together. Otherwise you're going to, you're not going to have longevity. You're not going to be a sustainable business. Things will, things will break. Things will be on fire. You'll have poor performers that are never getting managed. You'll have recruiting that's falling apart. You'll have compensation that's inequitable. Like, And all of that stuff can be hidden. I would say until you're like 40 or so, it can be hidden under the blanket of like cozy, warm, and, fuzzy company culture that like your office manager or somebody is even the CEO is like we do these great happy hours and we have these really transparent all-hands meetings and we're like get product feedback from the whole team and like all of these things that are so great right around like that 40-ish person number it gets a lot harder to maintain all of those things that just happen when you're small enough that everyone can sit in the same room for a meeting or the same you know everyone can fit on one zoom screen together like that all of those Things that you attribute to having a great culture, frankly, it's like it's just like lazy practice that you've been able to get away with because you're so small. Once you start hitting that like 50 person inflection point, uh, not coincidentally, it's the time when people start hiring their VP of people. Unsurprisingly, around 50 people is and companies start hiring their VP of people because there's a bunch of compliance stuff around that stage, and they're like, Well, compliance, we better have someone who can manage that. But it also is usually the time when things start breaking down. Like the easy communication, the knowing who to ask when something's not working, the like having a small enough product team that everyone is like easily working together. All those things start breaking down around 50. But if like for every company I talk to who's around 50 to 75 or so, like that range, who's hiring their first people leader, I like to think about like what would have happened if you had hired this person when you were 25 employees and they could have built the systems and programs in place to prevent this breakdown from even happening. And that's the key that I think a lot of companies miss is they don't think of it like preventative care, like in healthcare, you know, they think of it as like, well, our people leaders going to come in and be like the ER triage person who's going to come in and like fix everything that's broken. But like, what if instead you had them like doing preventative care things like regular, they were, they were regular. I'm like, now I'm like a hospital, like they were doing regular checkups every year and you know, keeping up with their dermatology appointments and brushing their teeth really well. And like, suddenly your company is a lot healthier than if you're like, we're just going to not do anything. Cause we seem like we're okay. But once everything starts breaking down, then we'll address it. Like you need to keep your company healthy. And that that's why you want the right person coming in. So to your question about like, you know, measuring culture fit before they're onboarded, it's like, it's critical. You have to know what kind of company you're trying to be and hire someone who can help you be that company. And if you don't know, that's another, that's another t- profile of a, of a people leader, right? It's like, if you come at it and say like, things are going really great, but like, we don't really know who we want to be. Things are going really great around here, but we don't really know why. Like, things seem like they're working, but we can't codify or put on, on paper, like why things are working so well. And we need someone to come in and help us define who we are and who we want to be and like the path to, to keep the good thing going. That's another profile of a people leader right and so ask like taking the the time to do the pre-work before you open the rec before you start talking to headhunters before you like get out there and market trying to meet people really take the time to figure out what what do you need what do you want this person to do and that will help you really narrow down the scope from you know let's let's have a headhunter talk to every person who's a vp of people at a series b startup because they've got the experience like they might have the experience to come in, but like, are you going to, are you in a place to listen to their experience? Are you in a place where like, you're going to be receptive to the things they're saying, or do you already have an outlook on what you need and want? In which case you probably want to narrow your search a bit.
0: No, for sure. And, you know, we've talked right now about so much of how important having a people leader is for your company and how, you know, they're able to organize everything. And, you know, we spoke about this off camera, but a lot of times in these in corporations, the, the the person who's heading the the people function, they tend to be everything to everybody, right? You're you're saying yes to this, yes to that. Different departments asking for help. You're running around yep. like a chicken with your head cut off. But that's how you yeah. feel. How difficult is that for for people leaders? And additionally, how important is it to really just lean into your strengths and acknowledge your weaknesses as as a leader in the people function?
1: It's very hard. I don't know a single people leader who hasn't felt at their breaking point at some point in their career. There's been over the last couple of years, there's been a a record number of people, leaders burning out, leaving the field entirely, going into consulting, going into venture capital, like just piecing out of the whole thing because it's a lot. And with the last couple of years, you know, here in the States and worldwide, the combination of the pandemic and economic uncertainty and racial issues that continue to persist here you know all of these things combined people leaders have had to be even more everything to everyone than usual we've had to learn about health and safety in a way that we never did before you know it used to be like earthquake safety cpr safety how a first aid kid in the office and now it's like learning about airborne viruses and covid safety and testing protocols and when do people be in an office and not and like there's so much that's been added to our plates in addition to like, okay, well, how do we think about anti-racism in the workplace? How do we think about financial education, like financial literacy for our employees? How, like how do we think about caregiver protection and caregiver support? Like there has been so much more added even than there was before and before it wasn't working. And so like people leaders are expected to be so much and, and, are expected to be so much with so little resourcing that it can just be exhausting and can be a complete, complete, complete road to burnout, like within your first year. Um, and I think, so the, I think the thing we've talked about before this, that I think is, it's something that I've really been focusing a lot in my own personal journey and with coaching that I do is Is this idea that you don't have to be everything to everyone. And if that's what's being expected of you, then you're in the wrong role in the wrong company. And it's really important to understand not just what am I at, but what do I actually want to be good at? And I think the problem that so many of us face is that we're put into these roles where we are good at everything. We can handle all of it. We can say yes to everything and figure it out. And we're scrappy and we're resourceful and we're people, people, and we can kind of figure it all out and be competent or even be excellent at so many different things that we end up like very broad generalists that are stretched past our capacity. And what would it look like instead to say, here are the things that I'm really good at that I actually love doing. And here's all the things that still need to get done, but maybe I'm not the only person who can do them. And are there people on the team currently that can do them? Can I get headcount to hire more people? Is some of this work that maybe doesn't need to get done? And really, really setting aside there, there's this, I want to say it's ego, but it's not ego in the traditional way that you think of ego. It's more like, like martyr, martyrdom, (laughs) egotistical tendencies of like, well, I can do this. So I should do this. And I should be the one to handle it because I can handle it. I can handle anything. And it can be, I have coached people, leaders who are afraid to ask for headcount, not because they don't think they will have budget for it, but because they don't want to appear that they can't do it all. And they like it's hard enough to ask for headcount in general. When you think like I'm not being given headcount, I have to actually ask for it. Cause you see the headcount planning process for every other team. Right. And it's like, you see your VP of engineering requesting more engineers. You see your customer success person saying, well, we need this many more customer success people to handle whatever. And it's really hard as a people leader to, to kind of get the courage and get the, the data behind you to say, I need this many more people and here's what I need them to do. And if, you, if I can't get that headcount, here's what I can't do. Instead, you tend to say like, like I can't get that headcount. So I'm just going to continue doing it all. And I don't know many other fields where like the VP level leader will say like, you won't give me headcount. Okay, I'll just keep doing it all myself. In most other fields, they say, I can't get more headcount to do this. Okay, well, this is what can't get done. Uh-huh. And so like for me, it was like taking a page out of the playbooks of frankly like the white dudes in other fields of leadership when I'm sitting at an executive table and I'm the only woman and everyone else is like you know a white dude my age and they're all asking for things and I'm sitting here like not asking for things like what am I doing like not only am I the only woman in the room I'm the only one not asking for shit like what is wrong with me so I just started asking for things and sometimes I was told no and then I had to have the courage to say no right back and it's only been recently you know I've been in I've been working now for in professional post college capacity for over 15 years. And I'm at a point in my career now where I feel comfortable saying, here's what I will do and here's what I won't do. And that takes time and that takes like building yourself up to get to that point in your career where you feel like you have the privilege and the, the power and position to say that. But I think even early on in your career, realizing that it's okay to not be good at everything. And it's okay to admit that you're not good at everything because you don't need to be and you shouldn't be. And what would your life look like if instead of trying to be good at everything, you focused on two or three things that you're excellent in, that you're like genius level, like we talk about your zone of genius, like that not only are you good at it, but you love it and it, it makes you feel alive to do that work. Like what would it look like if you could just do that and start instead of instead of starting with here's all the things i can do and i'm competent and i'm good at doing them and people need me to do them start with the thing that you really desperately feel like you have to do and then like work your way out from there i feel like often the the thing that i love is like tacked on at the end like the little cherry on top of the sundae like and if i can also do this that would be awesome because that's my passion like but why are we devaluing the things that we're good at because we're passionate about them and they come easily because we're good at them those should be the things that we value the most
2: why do you think the people space, excuse me, not people space, but the people function, is not well resourced or capitalized, and basically, from what you were saying, unappreciated at times?
1: The patriarchy. I mean, that's a you know that's a snarky answer, but honestly, the majority of people working in this field are women. The majority of the work is seen and has historically been seen as not strategic. It's been seen as administrative, supportive secretary like an extension of secretarial duties it's very outdated it's a very outdated way of thinking and thinking that way i'm just gonna say it thinking of that way keeps people in power who want to be in power it's the same way with other underrepresented groups whether you're talking about race gender economic status it is a way of of keeping people disempowered that the old rich white dudes don't want to be empowered and this is something that has extended out to a whole field because it's a field that's dominated by women and minor- minorities. And it's a field that has work that has traditionally been seen as not strategic. And it's only been in the last like 10 years or so that I've seen that change really start happening where we're still having these conversations and fighting to be seen as strategic partners at the table and to be seen as leaders in our own right, not just leaders that are that lead by supporting other leaders. And that's, that's a change that like, I witnessed it over the last decade, like through my throughout my career, I've, I've seen that change happening. And I keep remembering that change takes time, but it's exhausting to know your power and have others not see it. And it's, you know, it's that cycle of like, well, you don't think we have strategic power. And so you don't give us the resources we would need to execute on that. And so thus we are not able to do strategic, powerful work. And so it's just like, it's a cycle. But if you if you give a team resources and you let them have a strategic voice at the table, like you're going to build some really powerful companies. And the ones who invest in people programs and company operational excellence from the beginning are the ones that are going to be the most long lasting and successful.
2: What are some tools or resource equivalents that you see in other departments? I mean, this is probably a bad example. But maybe, I don't know, like HubSpot for like marketing teams or, things like that like what would be the equivalent (laughs) within the people yeah
1: well it's funny because I remember when I was first getting into this work back in 2009 2010 was like really the beginning of my like strategic side of my career here there was hardly anything available we were running like employee engagement surveys we were using SurveyMonkey and Google spreadsheets on the back end to like learn about employee engagement Um, and then came along CultureAmp and we were using spreadsheets to manage our employee data because we weren't ready for something big like ADP or like these big uh, payroll providers. So we, and then along came Bamboo HR, we got to move out of spreadsheets into technology. And at the time, like there was a very limited set of appropriate technology for HR leaders. There was big company stuff like the ADPs, like the Oracles, yeah. like these like big company software. But there was nothing for the, like, 25-person startup. And now there's thousands and thousands and th- thousands of vendors. I think at last count, I saw a list that was, like, 9,000 vendors that are all appealing to this space. And it feels to me like, so I remember I remember the shift. I was blogging back in the day when I remember the shift when brands realized that they needed to start pitching to moms because, like, moms and mommy bloggers were on the rise, and that was the, like... We need to stop advertising to the men in the family because the women are the ones who are making all the purchasing decisions for their families. You know, this was I'd say like 2005-ish or so, where it's like mommy blogging kind of was on the rise. And all of these brands started throwing events and conferences and doing sponsorships and doing all of this stuff because they realized women are making the purchasing decisions, which there was already a revolution of this back in like the fifties, right? When they were like, housewives are the ones selecting their appliances. We need to market to housewives. But then there is sort of like the the tech and consumer goods side of this that happened in the, the early aughts. That I I felt like there was this shift in like, I don't know, twenty eleven maybe twenty twelve, where all of a sudden technology companies realized that HR tech could be a really valuable space. We're seeing it again now with we call femtech technology for families and femtech technology for women, for you know, for females. These shifts when when people realize there's money to be made from a population, suddenly they start developing resources, right? So, right, I feel like it was right around 2012 or so. Companies were like, "Oh, like we could build software for HR people. HR people actually make a lot of buying decisions for their companies." And you just saw this like explosion in HR technology. I don't have data but I bet there's a really cool graph somewhere on the internet about like the rise of the HR tech companies. I know it's like a a known category, right? People know what HR tech is. People know who the buyer is. They know like this is our ICP based on what we're doing. I work for an HR tech company. Like this is, the buyer is a lot more understood by companies who are trying to sell to us, but not necessarily by the companies themselves. So I'll, I'll very quickly explain that because i think it's really critical for all industries when you are marketing your product to a customer and you have that customer working for you on your team you should take the time to get to know them as your icp like so at let's take like salesforce giant company they have their own giant sales team how often is the sales team influencing the product how often are they talking to their sellers not just their customers, but their own internal users about the product and getting product advice. I don't know. I don't work at Salesforce, but I can tell you HR tech companies overall don't have a reputation for doing that themselves. And that's one of the things that I, that drew me to Oyster was that they were a company that were like, you're going to come in and join us. And you are our ideal customer persona. You're our CP. We want to talk to you about the product. We want to talk to you about how we're selling. And to this day, I've been there two years. Now we're over 650 people. I still have people from the sales team reaching out to me and others on the workplace team to share, like, "Hey, I've got this idea for how to do cold emails now. Like, what do you think? Like, would you respond to this email?" And like, we still have people from the product team holding workshops with our HR team to so learn more. And like, that is rare in HR tech. And that is something that like companies need to do more of. Like, you have your customer working for you. Listen to them and develop for them. And like, because there are so many companies out there doing, for every new fancy HR tech idea, there's probably five or six competitors just easily trying to do the same thing. And if you can build what the customer actually wants, not what you see a financial opportunity for, like, I think then the money will come, right? But so many, if you talk to the HR tech leaders about like, why they got into the space, there are very few who got into the space because they themselves had experienced the problem that they're solving.
2: Which is unfortunate. Which is yeah. really unfortunate. Hell
1: yeah. Hell yeah. It's unfortunate. It's, <laughs> it seems crazy to me. Like, why would you start a company? Cause you think, you know, better. <laughs> I just don't have that kind Absolutely. of, like I'm not a, I'm not a founder, but like there's a company called pin who I will shout out any time, any day that like one of their co-founders is a former HR leader and they do, they're an HR tech company and one of their co-founders intimately understands the problem that his company is trying to solve. And it makes such a huge difference in the efficacy of the product and the way that they sell and the opportunities that they provide to bring their customers together. Like, if you know what your buyer needs because you yourself have needed it, you're going to build such a better product and your sales aren't going to be shady. You're going to have like an authentic sales cycle because you are going to care so much that your sales team is not going to go out there with the same freaking sales pitch that everyone's using. Yeah.
2: And, and one can argue, I mean, HR tech companies have more to lose ideally because
1: we all talk. Of it- we will ta- we will talk shit about you behind your, we will talk shit about you with each other and tell each other what vendors not to use. Like that's the other thing is like the HR community, especially in tech is so tight because we like grew up with so little. There's, there's, this very beautiful community element to the work where people are vulnerable and authentic and helpful with each other. I'm in several different HR communities for you know, mostly tech, tech company HR folks. And the common thread in all of them is that people are helpful, collaborative, and vulnerable with each other. People are saying, I'm in this sticky situation. I don't know how to solve it. Can someone help me? Or can you share your compensation philosophy because we're building ours and I don't want to reinvent the wheel? Like, people are sharing these deep things that are not competitive advantages. They're just like, this is how you build a good company. And we all should, you know, rise the tide and lift all the ships. And the other side of that is that we also talk about the vendors we're using. And we'll tell you if we're getting scammed. We'll tell you if, like, the sales team at one company is, like, really annoying. We'll tell you if we started using a product and then after a few months it failed to deliver. Like, we tell each other all this stuff because we're, we're in really tight community because we don't have anyone. And this is the thing with like the the upside for us of having under-resourced teams is that we all talk to each other because when you're a team of one or a team of three, like that's not enough to help you collaborate and do your job. You know, when you've got like a 200 person engineering team and a three person HR team, like the engineering team probably has enough within each other to like help each other out and get unstuck. Your HR team is like this little silo that no one else at the company understands their work. So they're gonna go to other people at other companies. And that leads to this trusting relationship where you feel like you can talk about things like, what vendor are you using for this? And why do you like them? And why do you hate them? And I mean, that's like a good chunk of the conversations that happen in these communities is talking about vendors.
2: Absolutely. And I think, Chris, you and I can also attest to this because a lot of guests we had on the pod were from referrals or someone in some people ops community. Yep. I guess a nice introduction.
1: It's a very small world out there. Like everybody knows someone, or knows somebody, to know somebody, and we all talk to each other. Because, like I said, like that's who we have. That's our community, and we're we're really protective of each other, and we stick together. And we're there's really not a lot of like negativity. It's just in general like a very supportive and vulnerable group that's built a lot of trust over the last ten years or so.
2: Before I let you go, I would definitely like to hear more by Oyster. I mean, I believe yes. checking out your LinkedIn and off-camera, you mentioned how you start off contracted and then eventually moved yourself into a full-time role. What is yeah. that dynamic like? <laughs> what is that dynamic like? And, you know, yeah. it just what's Oyster like? And what is it like being the head of people in a place that puts people in jobs? Yeah,
1: wild. So Oyster has been a very wild ride. We So I joined, there are about 75 people, just raised the Series B. Those 75 or so people were across 35 countries and they were looking for their first people leader to come in and like set everything up. They had been searching for a CPO for a while, hadn't found the right person yet. So they wanted to hire a a consultant to come in and and lay the foundation. And at the time, I was only looking for consulting work. I was not interested in going in-house. I was too burnt out of that work. And I was like, I'm just going to consult. They hired me as a full-time consultant. So I had no other clients. They were my only client. And I built a team, built the foundations of a bunch of Pro, like you know basic programs instead of so, like these are the ones we're going to prioritize these are the ones we're not very basic strategy stuff for the first like three or four months and then by the time I was on like month five or six we hired our CPO who was someone that I had looked up looked up to early in my career I had shamelessly copied things that he was doing at companies when I was just getting started I was good friends with his former VP of people at a previous company and as as I had sort of fallen in love with the company and the mission, I was like, look, like, if there's something that you want me to do, like, I'd be interested in talking about full-time opportunity. Like, I I could be convinced to go back in-house and do something. What do you need? What, do you, what are you going to need? And what can I help with? And he wanted someone who could build employee experience as a strategic function and have, you know, build a small team to... To build our employee experience strategy and he offered me a full-time role doing that and i was like well, i've never done that before i've never like just gotten to focus on employee experience as my full-time focus like that's pretty cool i'd yeah i'd try that and by that point we were about 350 employees it was crazy times and i was like yeah like i've never done fully global like this like let's do it so i spent a year in that role with a small team and then at the beginning of this year we were about 650 people in 70 countries and we did our first layoff of like a major company restructuring we had gone through this insane hyper growth we had raised our series c we were a unicorn company and then the economy like froze people weren't hiring anymore business slowed down a lot and we were in really uncertain times and so like many 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 other tech companies we had to think really hard about what team we needed to get to the next level and to keep the company sustaining and at the at that time we were, because we had grown so fast, we had built a team for hyper growth. And that team, this, the design of that organization wasn't going to be the right team to take us into kind of a slower, steadier pace. And so we did a total reorg of the company and that left a handful, like 60 people or so without roles. And we were able to place some of them in other roles within the company that were roles that we needed in the future. And then others we you know, generously parted ways with and and it's not fun to talk about, but like, I'm really proud of the way that we handled, handled their terminations. And as part of that, I, I we merged my team with the people operations team to become the people experience team. They took my direct reports and I moved into an individual contributor role because the needs of the organization had changed. We didn't need a standalone employee experience function. What we needed was like executive level HR support. And so my role kind of transformed into this role that I'm in now, which I like to say it's like a, like a principal engineer, but for people stuff. So it's, it's high level strategic support for our workplace leadership team. It's also high level strategic HR support for our VPs and our executive team. Basically anything that like my boss can't support and my, my peers can't support. They like plug me in to, to whether it's manager coaching, leadership coaching, org design, communication support, like all, all kinds of things. I'm like this Swiss army knife of the workplace team. And that, you know, that was another natural change that when we were going through the layoff process, I had a lot of hard conversations with my boss. I was like, Do you still need my role? Is this, as we're redesigning the organization, is my role one that is needed, whether you want me on the team or not? Like, it, I don't know if it makes sense to have a whole separate team just for this. And it might make more sense to connect the dots over here and connect these two teams together. And I was like, I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job, but like, if we're really taking a look at the organization and seeing what do we need for the next phase, like let's talk about what we need. And I was really interested in trying a senior IC role. I don't love people management, so my favorite thing. And so I was down to try it. And the thing that I think is really cool about this that other organizations should look into is pretty much every other function in a company has senior level ICs, right? You have like your principal engineer, you might have like a senior level data analyst. Like there are high level senior level roles that don't require being a people manager but that like really doesn't exist in HR. And I was like, what if we could prove that there is value in having a senior level individual contributor who's at the same level as your senior director of talent and your senior director of HR and you know whatever your other senior leadership roles are, what is an individual contributor role? What does that job look like? What do you need from it? How do you prove its value? I was like, let's like I'm down to experiment with that if if you are and he was and both of us are people who sort of look at the past and say like, well, that's nice that that's how you did it, but here's how I'm going to do it. So we sort of buckled up and put on our cowboy hats and we're like, yeah, let's try this out and see how it works. It's been working really well. It's been about a year now. I really enjoy it. I think the company gets a lot of value out of having me in this type of role. And I I hope that other companies will will start to experiment with the structure of their people teams and see what does the business need, not what does a typical work structure look like. We don't have to, we don't have to keep, um, keep copying from past models. We don't have to keep doing the same thing we've always done, just because like this is how you structure an ECR team. We can we can be a bit more inventive than that.
0: For sure, we just I can say I can probably speak for me and here. We just love uh, your innovation here completely coming up with your own role essentially I absolutely love that
1: <laughs> the conversations around like what the title should be are you do not want to see the scratch list
0: yeah no like, I can only what imagine. do we
1: call this thing uh,
0: cool. well I, and, and to your point I hope that you know other companies see the role that you're in and maybe we, we create a wave or maybe you know Kim trend Center right so
1: I hope so I I really hope so like I'm I like experimenting and I hope that like when the experiments work that people will will take them and if they don't work that people will learn like here's what worked here's what didn't and here's how we're going to try something new i think this this field is so ripe for innovation mm-hmm. and if companies will allow their people teams to be creative we can do so much more than you know what people typically think yeah, people think doing
0: and i completely agree with that kim really thank you so much for coming on the podcast today you're thank an you incredible guest really this is an incredible conversation please tell the people Where can they find out more about you if they want to connect with you, learn more? And where can they find more about Oyster?
1: Uh, Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's the best way to find me. Just LinkedIn slash, you know, in slash Kim Rower. And you can find more about Oyster at OysterHR.com. We have a super fun new work style quiz that just launched that you can find on our website or social media where you can take a very short quiz and learn what your work style is and how you best show up at work. Because at Oyster, we believe that you are more than your job title, and by embracing the whole the whole person, you get a much better work experience. So, take our fun little quiz and and get to know more about us if you're looking for global hiring support.
0: Well, you heard it, Everyone, go check out on LinkedIn. Go take the go take the quiz on Oyster <laughs> Oyster HR. Excuse me dot com. <laughs> Not uh,
1: AR. We are not getting. I know. It, it. I, I, I
0: was like, why say AR <laughs> HR not HR of course dot com and Kim. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Peace and I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, of course. And to everyone listening to the New Seed Podcast. Thank you very much. And until next time.